Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover though, whether right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forests and cabins in the wood, to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response as an ode to its far-reaching influence in society. While many of us stood around and debate the correct pronunciation of the word, its actual origin ain't so clear. Unfortunately, the origin of the word remains a mystery at best to this day. The most well-researched writing on the subject that I could find came from David Walls, who wrote on the naming of Appalachia in an Appalachian Symposium back in 1977. Mr. Walls researched the legend surrounding the naming and discovery of the Appalachians and to attempt to uncover the truth about the history. He found that it was Hernando de Soto who first learned of Appalachia and blazed a trail into America to claim and find it for Spain. Generally, the story follows that the root word itself came from a Native American word that holds some type of directional, geographical, or maybe a tribal meaning. Mr. Walls found no correlation between DeSoto and the first mention of the word Appalachia in any related documents. He did, however, discover that the first mention of the word related to Appalachia occurred in 1528 during the expedition of Panfilo de Narvaez. Upon reaching Florida, where present Tampa Bay is, Narvaez and his men inquired with the local inhabitants as to where the gold and riches were located. And probably just to get rid of the Spaniards, the natives told them a, of a place far to the north that possessed great riches. Now, riches to those Native Americans who had no use for gold or anything of such could very well have meant that the mountains were rich with game and fresh water. Those were riches to them. The name of this location was Appalachian, though we don't know if that word originated from a Native American language or if it was an inaccurate Spanish pronunciation of a similar word. 
It took almost 30 years for the word Appalachian or some derivative of it to be recorded on a map. Appalachian slowly evolved from being somewhere inside the mountains above Florida to actually being the entire mountainous region that runs parallel to the east coast along the eastern United States. The name stuck in Appalachia, but came the Appalachia we know today. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states to Louisiana. The inhabitants of those mountains, though through the many years of their existence, have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable. History, as we are now learning every day, is not exactly what we've been told, and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale has now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in those mountains, know that nothing, in fact, could be more wrong. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We will look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them, even to this day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, sponsored by Anchor.fm. Listen, my good friends, as I tell you about what was seemingly insignificant to the world outside of those who lived it. In the heart of the Appalachians, in Tazewell County, Virginia, there's a oval, bowl-like valley, or maybe you'd call it a cove, which is known for its fertile land and was once the bed of an ancient sea. This valley is about eight and a half miles long and four miles wide and it resembles a huge volcanic crater in satellite photographs and on topographic maps but it's neither it was formed when underground limestone caverns collapsed leaving a sunken valley in the mountains this valley is the second highest valley in virginia at around three thousand feet above sea level and is completely surrounded by tall mountains. The area was long occupied by varying cultures of native people. The valley was first surveyed in 1748 by a team of surveyors working for a local landowner named James Patton. One of the party named James Burke is said to have thrown away some potato peelings while cooking supper one evening. A year later, when the party returned to the area, they found potatoes growing in the area where the peels had been left. The area was named Burke's Garden as something of a joke, but uh, the name stuck. The community became an outpost of German immigrants who settled in the backcountry frontier in the late 18th century. The area remained relatively isolated as it was not near the transportation corridors or 
any of the major rivers. In the late 19th century, agents for the Vanderbilt family contacted local farmers about selling land so that the family could build a large estate there. So just who were the Vanderbilts? Well, their empire started with Cornelius Vanderbilt, who began to the prominence of the family. The fourth of nine children born in the Stanton Island family of modest means. Cornelius left school at age 11 and went on to build a shipping and railroad empire that during the 19th century would make him one of the wealthiest men in the world. Starting with a single boat, he grew his fleet until he was competing with Robert Fulton for dominance of the New York waterways. His energy and eagerness and earning him the nickname Commodore, by the way, which was a United States Navy title for a captain of a small task force. Fulton's company had established a monopoly on trade in and out of New York Harbor. Cornelius, who based his operation in New Jersey at the time, flouted the law, steaming in and out of the harbor under the flag that read, New Jersey must be free. He also hired the attorney Daniel Webster to argue his case before the United States Supreme Court. And by golly, he won, thereby establishing an early president for America's first laws of interstate commerce. The Vanderbilt family lived on Staten Island until the mid-1800s when Commodore Vanderbilt built a house on Washington Place in what is now Greenwich Village. Although he always occupied a relative modest home, members of his family would use their wealth to build magnificent mansions. And shortly before his death in 1877, he donated a million dollars to the establishment of Vanderbilt University in Nashville. He left the majority of his enormous fortune to his eldest son, William Henry Vanderbilt. William Henry, who only outlived his father by just eight years, increased the profitability of his father's holdings, increased the reach of the New York Central Railroad, and doubled the Vanderbilt wealth. It was George Washington Vanderbilt II, the youngest son of Henry, William Henry, who hired architect Richard Morse Hunt and landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted to construct the to-be-built-more estate. It was to be a 250-room mansion set at 175,856 square feet of floor space. It remains on top of the list of the largest houses in the United States to date. But no matter the amount offered by the Vanderbilts, the land was so rich in its ability to grow crops that nobody in the garden wanted to sell. So the Vanderbilt family ended up constructing their Biltmore Estate near Asheville, North Carolina as life continued on as normal in Burke's Garden, Virginia. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. I'm Larry Bentley, and I'll be right back. Now, the kindness of the close-knit community can be told in a story that dates as late as November 2009 when Brett Hall was on the roof of his new barn staining the cupola, which was the last thing he needed to do before the winter set on. 
when he was up there when he slipped on a patch of stain he'd spilled on the metal roof. He slid down the 24-foot length of the roof, flew off the barn backward, and landed with a crushing thud. His back was broken, and he would need an emergency helicopter flight to a hospital in Kingsport, Tennessee. It wasn't 10 minutes, and there were people coming from all over, and they just showed up in mass, said Brett. Brett recovered, and his parents recognized the type of community that this quaint little Appalachian town offered, so they moved from their native Texas to join Brett a few years ago and lived just across the pasture in what is affectionately called the garden. The only paved road into the garden snakes over the mountain from the town to Tazewell. For visitors, there's no lodging, few public attractions, and not a single gas pump in the garden. Only One only has to hit Route 623 from Grattan, just past the town of Tazewell, and ease over the mountain to immediately be stricken with the beauty of this ancient place. Isolated in the mountains as it is, the garden remains until this day pretty much unchanged as it was in 1952 when the community was terrorized by what will be called the Varmint of Burke's Garden. Now the Varmint first attracted attention in February of 1952 when six lambs were found slaughtered in the snow. Shortly afterward, sheep losses started to occur almost every night. The largest flock losses were suffered by farmers Harry Lineberry, who lost 94 sheep, Bob Davis lost 58, and Jim Hogue lost another 50. Bowen Meek lost nearly half his 85 sheep, including his entire lamb crop, and was forced to sell the remaining sheep in an attempt to offset his losses and keep his business. Now, to the person outside of this community looking in, this would appear to be little more than just a collateral damage of the chosen profession of the good farmers of Burke's Garden. But to those farmers, this was their livelihood, and they were losing their shirts to this varmint. In total, the varmint, whatever it was, had killed at least 410 sheep in the garden, collectively worth $23,000 in 1952. That's nearly a quarter of a million dollars today. For nearly a year, the varmint's identity was completely unknown. Of course, the locals speculated that it was a mad dog, a big cat, maybe a wolf or a wolverine. Based on few brief sightings, some even suggested that it was a baboon or a kangaroo. The thing was so fast you could just get a glimpse of it. I expected if they <laughs> had heard of a chupacabra, then somebody would have seen one of them too. But whatever it turned out to be, it was fast, and apparently it was hungry. Finally, having to fill the varmint, the Board of Supervisors of Tazewell County contacted the Lee Brothers, the best-known big-game hunters in the United States. The Lee Brothers consisted of Ernest, Vince, Dale, and Clell. They operated a guide and big-game hunting business. The Lee Brothers were among the seven children of John and Jane Lee, and they all were born in Texas. They moved to a farm on the east side of the Chiricahua Mountains around 1910. The father died in 1916, and the family moved to Paradise, Arizona, where Mother Jane operated a stage line hotel. The reputations increased, and they worked their way into professional guide business. From his home in Tucson, 
Ernest ran the organization while Clell and Dale were the big hunters and Vince joined them part-time. His brothers worked to develop a stronger breed of hunting dog and they developed the Blue Tick Hound, which they registered with the United Kennel Club in 1938. The men were requested to come to Virginia to help local residents. It so happened that Dale Lee was in Venezuela hunting jaguars, but his brother Clell was available and actually answered the call. When he arrived in Bluefield, Virginia, which holds the distinction of being a city that is split right down the middle of Main Street by the Virginia and West Virginia state lines, he found himself coolly received by local farmers. But Mrs. Meek, the wife of one of the men, was kinder and invited him to stay at her house. Mr. Lee did some scouting and was able to find a track that had been left in a block of ice and identified the varmint as a coyote. His diagnosis shocked many residents of the garden. No coyotes had been seen in the area as far back as anybody could remember. But not to mention coyotes are normally scavengers and rarely if ever kill, let alone wreak the kind of havoc seen here. Then accompanied by the sheriff, farmers, hunters, and game wardens, Mr. Lee set out to put an end to the varmint before it could do any more damage. Mr. Lee and his dogs soon found the scent and followed it for about five hours until nightfall put an end to their hunt. Mr. Lee asked all parties back to the hunt at dawn the next morning. The sheriff objected, of course, saying that nobody in the county hunted on Sunday. Mr. Lee explained that he had found a fresh scent and saw no reason to impose on locals any longer than necessary, and besides, the varmint could strike again at any time. The next morning, that's exactly what they found. The varmint had struck again that night, killing two more sheep. Mr. Lee stationed his hunters near the site of the attack and set his dogs back on the scent. Finally, Alfred Jones, a resident of the garden, killed the coyote after a chase of a few hours. Alfred was accompanied by Dewey Tibbs, local resident, and Hugh Cox, another one. The coyote was killed as it dashed across the Joe Moss Cemetery. Local residents were absolutely euphoric, and a potluck dinner was held in Mr. Lee's honor. The coyote measured four and a half feet long and weighed over 35 pounds. Its fangs were an inch long. The varmint was strung up in a local schoolyard, and more than 3,000 people came to see it. That's saying something, being that the garden only had a population of less than 200. Later, it was taken down to the Tazewell County Courthouse and put on view for 7,500 more visitors who showed up. The varmint was finally turned over to a taxidermist who prepared it for display, and it is currently on display at the Crab Orchard Museum in Tazewell, Virginia. Now, this may seem like a drab story from a drab part of the country, but you might even call it Mayberry-esque. Sometimes Appalachian life is day-to-day pretty much a mirror of the previous day in this situation. What may seem drab to some of us, well, I guarantee it wasn't drab to those in the garden that year, especially the ones that lost a big part of their livelihood to the varmint of Burke's Garden. 
I hope you've enjoyed this story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. I'll be back soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend. And uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you then.